Hi, welcome to the Trauma Thrivers podcast. Delighted to have you with us. I'm Lula Bentz, your host, a psychotherapist, a trauma expert, and a survivor myself. Lovely to have you with us. The Trauma Thrivers podcast is for anybody who has been through any sort of developmental trauma or who has complex PTSD. This podcast aims to help educate, inspire and support those of us that are on a trauma healing journey. We've got stories, steps and various solutions to trauma to help you heal. If you'd like more information or tips or tools or strategies, please go to traumathrivers.com. You can also find this podcast on my YouTube channel, Lula Bent's Trauma Thrivers. If you'd like to join our community of thrivers, please find us on Facebook under Trauma Thrivers. Thank you so much for this month's sponsors who are Silkworth Lodge in Jersey. Silkworth provide residential treatment for people with alcohol or drug addiction. Alongside Silkworms, their support program for children aged 7 to 12 affected by the addiction of a family member. They've also got a new 13 to 18 year old adolescent service. Silkworth provide real end-to-end support to all of those affected by substance misuse. So for more details, please go to silkworthlodge.co.uk. I really hope you're going to get lots out of this episode. Today, my guest is Shari Botwin, and Shari has been counselling survivors of all types of trauma in her Cherry Hill, New Jersey private practice for over 23 years. Her second book, which is Thriving After Trauma, Stories of Living and Healing, deals with overcoming trauma, including physical and sexual abuse, war-related injury, loss due to tragedy or illness and natural disasters. These are real stories and practical tools that shed light on how to let go of the shame, guilt, anger and despair after a traumatic experience. So Shari really has lived, breathed and worked trauma and I urge you to buy her new book. It's a fantastic read. Welcome to Shari today. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be with you. And how did you get into trauma? Can we start with that? I know it's the same question I usually ask, but I always think that the listeners or the viewers want to hear a bit about you. Yeah, I think, you know, when I was growing up, I always could picture myself helping those people that were somehow at a disadvantage I always wanted to be that person who could help the kid that was getting bullied or the kid whose parent was sick. And on some level, I knew that I wanted to help them because there were things that I could relate to. So I kind of spent my childhood in sort of a caretaker, not therapist, but a caretaker, peacemaker, kind of role. And I never really knew why that was. But what I knew was it made me feel less alone. It gave me a sense of purpose. And 
I was always searching for that. That was that was one of the ways that I survived a lot of experiences that just felt at times unmanageable. So when I went to school, I majored in psychology. I didn't know I was going to be in the trauma field. I thought I was going to work in a school because I always wanted to help kids. But what happened was I got my master's in social work. And when I was getting my master's in social work, I was also at the beginning of my own recovery from childhood abuse. Okay. So I kind of did both things at the same time. My first job was in an inpatient and outpatient setting for eating disorders. Besides dealing with all the trauma that I was living in and experiencing, I also was struggling with many symptoms of an eating disorder. So when I got into that job, it just, again, felt like such a good fit because the, the patients, the residents were talking about things that I never could verbalize. They were talking about their their feelings about their body. They were talking about all the symptoms. And one of the things that I noticed when I was working at the Renfrew Center was many of the patients that were there also had survived something pretty horrific. Yeah. And again, not trauma, meaning not just abuse, but people who were severely injured after training for the Olympics. I I met many women who lost a parent or had a parent that was mentally disabled. And what they were talking about in treatment was all these other issues that were going on and how that led to an eating disorder. So what happened was I worked there for a couple of years. And then as I got more into my own recovery, I needed space. I, I found myself almost so triggered by some of the things that the patients were talking about that I decided to open up my own practice so that I could better monitor what kinds of patients I was working with because I wanted to be able to do the work, but I did not want to unravel in it. No. So I would say for the first five or 10 years, I really only worked with people who had eating disorders, but not so much abuse survivors. Again, people who had experienced different types of trauma that weren't so close to my own. Yes, and I really get you. I really get you. In fact, you know, talking about parallel lives and stories, I mean, my first job wasn't in an ED unit, but it was in an addictions unit and very, very similar. I so resonate with you. I remember I used to drive across a park in Southwest London home every day on my way home. And I remember my first year at the center, probably because it was touching so much of my own stuff. I remember most days I would drive home in tears. But I spent 10 years there, (laughs) you you know, you got out after a couple and went into private practice, which sounds like it was a good plan for you. Yeah. Yeah, it really worked because it allowed me to get adequate support. I could go to my therapy sessions and I could schedule my life around my own recovery. But when you say that about your ride home... I, I can so relate to what you're saying. I wouldn't cry, but I would go home and just sort of sit in a chair and be frozen. Yep. Totally. I I didn't know what was getting triggered. I knew that I didn't feel okay, but I didn't know why. Yeah. And in those days, I mean, I'm going back, God, 20 years ago, but in those days, I, I, I didn't really understand 
so much that trauma was underneath addiction and eating disorders, etc. as we do now. We were kind of just treating the addiction. Yeah. We may have done a little touch on the trauma, but somehow I didn't connect those two yet in my own head. And I'm wondering if you experienced that and at what point you kind of went, oh my God, this ED stuff or addiction stuff, and, and maybe even our own stuff, that is actually trauma. Yeah, and you know what? Uh, it took me a very long time to really be able to put the pieces together. I think mm -hmm. I figured out the connection in my own therapy. And then what I was doing in my therapy was I was bringing those sessions sort of like in my heart and mind to my work. And I could hear different people talking about all these awful things that they had lived through and how the eating disorder and at times addictions too, because I've seen both, they become, they become the way to cope with feelings that we don't want to have to digest. Yeah, totally. So when I think of an eating disorder and it could be any type, it could be anorexia, bulimia, binge eating, using those symptoms, it becomes the vehicle to suppressing the shame to pushing away the despair, the anger. I've met some people and we, we talk about this years into their therapy. They say to me that their eating disorder helped them to survive. Yeah. It kept them alive. And that I can relate to because growing up, I ate when I wanted to end my life. There were many times as a teenager where I contemplated ending my life. And there were times when I literally would picture myself driving my car off the road and then thinking about it, but I really want to be able to eat that whatever later tonight. And it was that thought that would help me stay on the road. To think back to that. Oh, and I'll never forget. That probably we've got some listeners or viewers that are struggling with exactly the same at the moment, listening to us. And then what do we say to them? What, what, what do you say to them? Yeah. You make the link and how did you start to put down those things and those coping strategies which I guess is what we have to do to get to the underlying trauma right yep I think you know one of the things that I, that I try to do when I first meet somebody and they don't really have insight into where their eating disorder comes from sometimes I meet people who don't even know they're trauma survivors because the word trauma it's such a generic word. What does that actually mean? Some people think if I didn't go to war, then I'm not, I didn't, I don't have PTSD. People yeah. still yeah. sometimes think that. So what I do in the beginning when I'm working with somebody is I ask questions like, what's the role of your eating disorder? Like if I were to say to you, how would you describe your relationship with your eating disorder? Is it your best friend? Is it your abuser? Is it your source of comfort? I think that's the first step to understand the role it serves and also to be able to ask people questions like, what feelings would you be having if you weren't so obsessed with what you were going to eat or you weren't so upset about the number on the scale? If you weren't thinking about that 24 hours a day, what do you think you would be thinking about? And that's when usually people start to break down defenses. I talked to this one young woman who I love and she lost her sister when she was eight. She's 17 now. Her younger sister died of cancer. Yeah. And when we started talking about the days when she's restricting and what that leaves her feeling, sort of like feeling numb and 
Like, I feel like I'm alive, but I don't really feel like I have to deal with my feelings. As soon as I ask her, do you think if you were eating on that day, for example, the day of your sister's anniversary of her death, what do you think would happen? She just burst into tears in the session because she has so much unspoken grief. She's been living her life every day from age nine. She was nine. Her sister was eight when she passed away. Mm. She's 17 now. And as soon as I say her sister's name, her eyes get all watery. And it's very scary. It's very uncomfortable to feel these feelings, especially when we can't fix it. Like if she cries about her sister, it doesn't bring her back. So what she says to me is, what's the point? of feeling all this, it won't change anything. And then we start talking about, because we need to help you to be able to live with this loss, not get over it, not forget about it, but integrate, integrate the feelings into your life so that you can have space for the sadness. But then as you feel the sadness and you let go of the symptoms, you can then live a fuller life. So it's kind of what you're saying is, you know, have the insight first, find out more about it. So kind of psychoeducate, look at the role that these coping strategies and what their kind of positive intention is for you in a way, and then start to process some of the feelings that haven't been processed yet. And the only other thing I'm thinking is when we're doing that in the work, the other pieces to develop other options. So like with this one young woman, when she's having a day where she wants to restrict, we together think about what are your other choices? So you also want to put in that in the treatment part of the process is developing alternative coping strategies. So I know for myself, when I was in my recovery and I would want to restrict or I would be thinking about what I look like, I would say to myself, what else can you do? What are some other things? And as you have this dog next to you, beside you, one of the first things that I did was I got a dog. Did you? My Chloe, I'm telling you this, she's Uh, been gone now for nine years, over nine years. She is such, she's so in my heart. I got her because I wanted something to focus on besides myself. And I wanted courage. I wanted to be able to get out in the world and travel. I had hardly traveled. I took this, I had a King Charles Spaniel, which I'm sure you. Yes. Yes. They're they're all over London. Yes. Love that dog. She came to work with me. She came to my therapy with me. So when I was trying to recover from the eating disorder symptoms, I did things like go for hikes. I used to take her to New York city and we used to go wandering around the park. (laughs) I found pet therapy hotels and and there's many of them in New York city. So she would, you know, walk in the, in the lobby with me, her little, she had her little, little Christmas bell collar thing that she would wear. And the other thing it did for me was it helped me to know that there's good people out there because when you're walking around the world with a puppy, yeah, everybody talks to you. Everybody, and you know what I've realized? There's some really nice people out here. Yeah, yeah. There's like, before I had her, I just sort of was walking down the street. And and I th- I remember this when I would be in New York City, especially, because I used to go there as a young teenager, 18, 19, young woman, I should say. And this would be what my thought was, stay away, like, get away from me, 
get away. Like, don't come near me because I was so afraid of people. Once I started bringing Chloe to New York, I mean, kids were coming up to me. Everybody was coming up. I, I was always late everywhere I had to be because this dog was so flipping cute that I couldn't even get from one block to the next. Everybody was, she's so cute and blah, 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 blah. And it was so healing for me. Yeah, I love it because you've mentioned kind of the next step, maybe or maybe not quite the next step, but one of the main steps that I always try to get people to utilize is how do we start connecting to safe relationships and starting to realize that not all people want to hurt us? Yeah, this is where therapy can be so helpful. A lot of times people ask me, how did you find your therapist? Was she like a trauma specialist? How did she deal with what you know you brought to the sessions? It wasn't her background. It was her, the way she conveyed caring. She had a look on her face that I had never seen before by somebody that was listening to me. I had never seen that. And within three or four sessions, while I had no idea what, what, where we were going to go in terms of my journey, I knew that I felt safe. I knew I felt safe. And I say this to people, you need to be able to trust your instincts and your gut. So when you're sitting and it doesn't have to be a therapist, it could be a friend. It could be anybody. It could be one of your mentors, your boss, when you're sitting in the room with somebody and you're needing or wanting something from them, pay attention to how you feel as you're putting it out there. Yeah. Do you feel heard? Do you feel judged? Do you feel accepted? So when I met her and and this, I talk about this in my book, the importance of that safe connection and what that does for our lives moving forward to I, the way I look at therapy is that it's the stepping stone. It's sort of like the transition into going or into moving into a life of healthy, boundaried, safer relationships. You learn through your therapy relationship, or if you're not in therapy, you can learn through your partner or a best friend. You find what are the things that work in this relationship? What are, What's different? How is Dorothy, my therapist, different than my parents? And What I look for in my connections is what I feel with Dorothy, not what I felt with my parents. If I feel what I'm feeling with my parents, what I felt with my parents, I veer off. Yeah, yeah. that's so, so true. At what point do you, well, the relational work is all of therapy, isn't it really? Because it's going on underneath everything. I mean, it colors everything. And I suppose I'm thinking really, for those people out there that aren't in therapy because not everybody can afford therapy. I mean, I consider, you know, myself and lots of people very lucky in that in our healing journeys, we've been able to find significant other people to trust. And in a way, I'm hoping what this podcast can do in some ways is say to people that are listening, you can trust people even in our domain who are putting together stuff like this you can start to have different relationships even with you via your book or me via the group and also you know trauma thrivers is a community now there are lots of other people in that community that will listen that will be there that will hear your story or hear what's going on because we do need that in our recovery journey don't we 
think it's so important. And one of the thing, one of the reasons I reached out to you was because I saw that you had this group going. And I think, especially during the quarantine, the opportunity with all the free time and being home, the opportunity to make connections and reach out. It's it. This is the time when you want to jump on it. And obviously, because we're home, the online platform is such a wonderful way to do that. And not only that, we both talk about trauma thriving, which is another massive connection because we're both saying the same. And I know that what you're doing in the book and all the rest of it can really help lots of people that are in that community, um, which is really fantastic for me. So how do you think, just because you just touched on it then, how do you think COVID is affecting those of us with trauma? You know, when we first went into the quarantine, I think um, the shock and sort of denial that this is actually happening, this is going to go on for months, this is not going to be just for two weeks, that feeling of out of control and uncertainty and isolation it's, it was so overwhelming. I think at this point now we're in survival mode. Many of us who, many people who didn't just go through one thing or one day something bad happened, but lived in an abusive relationship for years, they're being reminded through the quarantine of that sort of that longevity and that never ending path that feels like it's just doom and gloom. So I think it's so important as trauma survivors that when we're feeling like that, that we look at the things in our life that don't feel out of control. Like what are some things that you're doing now that help to remind you that you're doing what you need to do to keep yourself safe. And you need to acknowledge the feelings and the frustration about COVID, but what are things that you're doing now so that you do feel safe and that you, you, you maintain connection because I think one of the things I talked about a lot in the beginning, when they kept saying socially distant, yeah. socially distance yourself, I think trauma survivors thought that meant like stay away from people. They mean physically stay like six feet apart. They mean be careful about so like physical contact, but nobody said you can't be close to people. Right. Nobody said you can't date. Nobody said that stuff. Nobody said you can't see your boyfriend now. If you met your boyfriend three months ago, now you can't be with him because of the quarantine. That's not what they said. They're, they're giving us advice based on the virus and how to protect ourselves and those that we love. But what I really think that, and I think people are starting to understand this now, we need now more than ever to be reaching out. And what we have to be open to is we just have to do it in a different way. So I can't say to my patients, well, you really need, you need to try and meet people for dinner at least twice a week. That's not what I'm going to tell people. I'm going to say, you need to talk to somebody twice a week. You need to set up a FaceTime. You need to like, sometimes I talk to people about having FaceTime dinner dates yeah. or my little nine-year-old down the hall. Who's, I don't know, he's not here. He's actually at school now, but they just went back to school last week. So oh, no. What we're doing with kids is we're having them do FaceTime movie nights. They yeah. all like get on their phone and they all say, okay, three, two, one, press play. And then they all watch the movie together. So Lovely. these are the things you can take walks with people. And if you're nervous about the, the six feet apart, wear a mask, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that 
trauma survivors are being confronted with some of the same fears that they already lived through. And we don't want to be re-traumatized, no, right? We don't. I agree. And I think there are days when it feels like that. And I know myself, I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, I've been in therapy. I can handle this. There are days when I get so overwhelmed, frustrated, lonely. And rather than keep that to myself, I say something, I tell somebody and everybody usually says back, yeah, me too. Lovely. But that's the difference, isn't it? I guess between surviving and thriving because at the thriving point, I always say to people, you have a voice, you can say it like it is, you can speak your truth, you can kind of be vocal about things. Even when you're feeling not great, you can be vocal about it. So I don't know how you kind of view that going from surviving trauma to actually being able to thrive and what thrive means because you've written a whole book on it so yeah yeah what were the commonalities would you say between all those people that were thriving what had they learned or overcome to get to that point I think the two feelings that people have overcome or work through is the shame yeah. And the fear. Yeah. I think again, in terms of the surviving piece. So the, the way to go from moving into thriving is to be able to acknowledge the shame and the fear and understand where it comes from. Shame is one of the most crippling feelings oh. that trauma survivors are left with. And it's not just abuse survivors. It's clearly a huge issue for people who've been abused but anybody who's been through something that they couldn't control, that they had to witness and they couldn't fix, we go into these feelings of if only I had this or maybe I could have that. And that then leads to feeling like I'm not worthy. I don't deserve to have a good life. People don't love me. People don't accept me. So I think that you know, in my work with patients, people do different things to, to overcome the shame. But I think the way I look at it is we have to be able to identify that you are feeling that. And we have to understand what the role is of that as well, because the shame becomes the obstacle to overcoming and to having courage and to feeling worthy of better. If we don't work through those feelings, we don't acknowledge them, you're going to continue to be in abusive relationships or you're going to continue to live a life that's restrictive because that's all you feel worthy of. Yeah, totally. I, I'm 100% with you. And that the shame personally for me was the most difficult part of it. It's, the, it's a very complicated part of recovery. And I think I had, when people used to talk about the word shame, I had no idea what in the heck they were talking about. What are you talking about? You mean like ashamed? And then when I met some colleagues who could differentiate and really help me to identify, shame is when you feel fat, ugly, disgusting. Shame is when you feel like unworthy, undeserving. Once I understood that, then I could look at different parts of my life and see how I would self-sabotage. Yes or limit like I would only allow myself so much and then I would say that's enough you don't need any more yeah and if we live like that we can't have all of what we want from yeah. ourselves or others yeah because it's the antithesis of thriving isn't it really 
you know, because we're still shrinking, we're still hiding, we're still not wanting people to see us. So, you know, to thrive for me has been the hardest thing in my trauma surviving story is to actually put yourself out there and believe that you are worthy of anything you know whatever that anything is you know it could be abundance or relationships or 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 money or a house or a nice car or new clothes you know when you're filled with shame you don't even want to feed yourself properly I think what helped me and I think that there might be people who can relate to this once I actually became a mom I never, I always wanted to be a mom, but I never thought I could be. I, and I never really understood why I felt that way. Why do I feel like I can't be a mom? I have a history of miscarriages from my abuse. So I had that piece, but once I like, but here's the thing, if I hadn't, if I didn't speak about that part of my history, I would not have been diagnosed with the, I have like a disorder a genetic disorder that leads to miscarriages. If I stayed silent in the doctor's office and I didn't tell her this is my history, I would have not been able to have a healthy pregnancy because I needed to take certain medications to keep the pregnancy viable. Okay. So while it was incredibly painful to talk to the doctor, I still remember talking to her and I don't talk a lot about that part of my life. So when I do, or even when I wrote about it in the book, I get so overwhelmed with sadness because it's something that I kept to myself for so long, but it was in speaking about what I went through that she could help me have a pregnancy. So it was a combination of despair and joy. When I got the phone call that I had this certain disorder, but she said to me, but we can do something now when I'm like, this is the worst thing that I could ever hear. She says, no, it's not because now that we know here's what we're going to do. And it was in knowing what I could do. I had an amazing pregnancy, no issues whatsoever. Yes. I had to do daily injections of blood thinners and it was, ugh. who wants to give themselves an injection twice a day. But every day that I gave myself that injection, I said, you're loving yourself and you're taking care of that little monkey that's growing inside of you. But I think once I actually saw myself as a mom, when I saw, watch myself hold Andrew as a little baby, when I could watch myself go into his room at night, he had really bad asthma as an infant. So he needed lots of nebulizer treatments. Okay. So when I went into his room in the middle of the night, I said to myself, you're not taking advantage of his vulnerability. You're loving him. And I would sit next to him, hold the mask on his face. And he used to take his finger and wrap it around my, my finger. And while I felt so bad for this little guy, he had such bad asthma and it was very scary. I walked out of that bedroom and I wrote about this saying, look at how different you are as a parent. Yeah, yeah. Look at what you're doing. You're not going in there doing horrible things to him. You're, you're, You're giving him medicine. And not only are you giving him medicine, but you're nurturing him in the process. Which is wonderful. Yeah, wonderful. And breaking whatever the intergenerational pattern is and also for me and this is what I hear is the hardest part with clients or anybody that we work with or even maybe ourselves too is bringing in our own internal nurturing parent isn't it 
to ourselves. And maybe if we can do it for somebody else or something else, be it a dog or a kitten, or dare I say, even a child, it shows us how to be so kindly to those parts of ourselves that need that nurture. Absolutely. And I think that's the other key besides the facing the shame and the fear. The key to thriving is becoming that parent that we didn't have internalizing wonderful, nurturing thoughts and feelings, even if nobody told us that stuff. That's the key, because I think that's what sustains us. And that's what gets us through that helps us go from self harm, or wanting to self harm to self care. There's a huge difference. And I think especially during a quarantine, when they talk about um, the burnout, you know, the quarantine burnout, this, this, the ability to nurture ourselves is, is crucial. It's part of what keeps us sane. It's part of what helps us to be able to continue parenting or taking care of loved ones or pets. And I always say, for as much as you give out, make sure you take it in. And you, you can't always get it from another person. You've got to be able to rely on yourself first because there's going to be times, especially when you're socially distancing, you can't just wrap your arms around people anymore, right? No. So you need to figure out how to wrap your arms around yourself. Yeah. So important. So mm. important. Beautiful message. So what now for you with the book? What would you like? What would you want to do next? What do you want to do to help more people thrive through their trauma? I think before we had COVID, what I was picturing was getting out on the road and starting to get into other countries. I'm doing that, but I'm not doing, I'm doing it from my bedroom. But I think really what I want is I want the book to be printed in other languages. So, because I, I, I get messages. I got a message from someone in Germany. She hardly speaks any English, but the book is only in English. So she got the book she's in Germany and she got in English and she told me that she sleeps with it under her pillow every night. Oh, oh. and my heart, like, yeah. like explosion. I don't know how she found out a book about the book. I don't remember. Cause this was probably right before COVID that we connected, but I want to be able to get out there and share the message, but not just because I want people to know about my book because I want to meet, I want to meet people. I want to, there's such a universal connection between trauma survivors, no matter where we're from. I agree. We have, and again, your trauma, my trauma, our stories may be different, but there's so many commonalities. I can feel that as you're talking, because I don't really know. I don't know what your story is, but I can feel that we have a lot in common. We share a lot of the same struggles. And I think to be able to get out there and continue to share our message I think that that's such a, a wonderful thing. And that's really what I want to be doing. I want to be able to just keep getting out there. And I don't think that anything that I say is earth shattering or something new that I discovered. I think I'm just talking from my heart about things that work and that can help people figure out how to move into a life of thriving versus a life of just sort of getting through the day. Yeah. I'm totally with you. And I wonder if there's some way post COVID, maybe 
in a in an ideal world where we can phone each other and go hey how about doing a weekend seminar somewhere in america and the uk and you know we get a lot of our trauma people together telling their stories of hope and inspiration because i know that there's one thing that i'm really passionate about and that is helping survivors realize they can no matter how long it takes they can get to a life where they can overcome it and thrive. I'm so glad you said that because I don't, I, that's the other piece. This is a very long, um, I'm trying to think of the words, but it's a long, complicated, complex process. And you need to, you need to take as long as you need, meaning there's no, well, after one year, should I this? Or after five years, should I that? I let go of that. I let go of that. Once I became a mom, I said to myself, it doesn't really matter that you're still seeing a therapist 15 years later. Because look at all that you've done in the 15 years since you started seeing your therapist. Or when I meet with patients, or even if I talk to friends and they say, I can't believe I'm still struggling with this. It's like, you know what? But that's just the life that you're living recovery is a lifelong process. There are still times when I get the, the worst of my trauma gets triggered and right. Totally. totally. Right. Yeah. And it, it, can hap it happens. It happened recently for me in a work experience. It happens in relationships. And you know, when I say to myself, don't beat yourself up for re-experiencing some of the shame or feeling like a victim, you don't want, I don't want to stay stuck in that, but learn from it, grow from it. Like my therapist would say this to me and I used to roll my eyes and be like, would you stop saying that? She always would say, this is an opportunity, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, take yeah. your opportunity and shove it up your whatever. But she's right though. Yeah, yeah. And as I saw very personally last Sunday, you know, when I was reactive rather than regulated, as I like to say, oh my god you know oh there's that belief is still obviously there that you know in the other breath I say to myself you know it's just the next layer it's just the next layer some more to take back to EMDR you know there you go yeah yeah right and you have you're open to the idea that it's, it's not like one day I can be like on my 50th birthday which is in four weeks Oh, um, you're a spring chicken. Oh, I don't know. About that. <laughs> no, I passed that a while ago. Well, good. I can call you that day and be like, can you please tell me this isn't yeah. happening? But to be able to just like, it's not like something magical is going to happen on my 50th birthday. There's probably going to be things that are going to happen on my 60th birthday, on my 55th birthday. I'm going to have to confront things as a parent. Yes. My little guy, he, he can push buttons that I didn't even know there was a name for. It's can, amazing, isn't it? And you know what? I say to myself, you're the best thing that ever happened to me, Andrew Botwin, because he forces me, that little monkey forces me to look at things that normally I wouldn't look at. But he also brings out the best in me, like mm -hmm. to be able to actually love and nurture something else and watch him skip down hallways or He's playing soccer right now. And this is so healing for me. I could never play sports because I was so shut down and so insecure that as soon as I would get on the tennis court, that was my sport. I couldn't compete because I just felt 
horrible. Yeah. He goes out on the soccer field and last weekend I watched him, this ball comes to him and he just went. And I'm like, look at him. He went to the ball and he just took it down the field and shot a goal. And then he started doing the Andrew Botwin dance. He does this like dance thing. And I watch him and I think, what a difference it is to be able to witness a child who's safe. Yes. And like it's, it's, it's so healing because mm -hmm. that's what you want. You want to be able to be around people who bring joy and happy and safety and emotion. Like that's what we need. And also it's a determinant of you having done all the work that you've done on yourself to heal your own history and your own trauma so you can be an emotionally available and present and connected mom. And I mean, how wonderful is that? Yeah, and I think that's the thing. When you go into the feelings of shame and fear, you lose your footing. You yes. no longer are in the moment. So there have been times clearly when I'm trying to parent or be a therapist or be someone's friend and I get triggered and I feel myself going, like you said, shrinking or yeah. feeling rage in a way that doesn't match the situation, like feeling distrust in a way that doesn't match. And I try and identify it and then I work through it. And that's what you're talking about too with the EMDR. I've not done it, but I understand what it does. I understand what it does. And I think it helps you to shift out of the feeling and it helps you to reframe things and make it, it make sense, but put it like your bookshelf behind you to be able to put that feeling and put it back on the shelf versus have it lying on the floor next to you. Yeah, I would describe it as being able to allow the feeling up and metabolize it whilst the thinking around it as the feeling is uh, released, the, 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 the belief completely uh, disintegrates. Disintegrates, right. It kind of like pops. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's a shame reducer, right? That belief yeah, that like that thing where you, where we feel like it was, it's our fault. One of the things that I've recognized as I've gotten older is what people did to me had nothing to do with me. No, nothing. nothing. It, I, I'm with and you. To, right. To be able to get to that point. And it, it can be very hard to get to that point. And I think that's where adulthood can be a gift. And I think you have to be an adult long enough to see that these experiences that you went through growing up really were not about you. I think that's one of the hardest pieces. And I think being in a nurturing role and it doesn't have to be a parent. It can be a teacher. It can be a doctor. It can be a therapist. It's in being in that role as an adult and watching ourselves be different. That's also a big, that's a big, um, I'm trying to think of how you would say that. But for me, that's where I, I sort of jump the obstacle or I overcome the hurdle is I actually see the difference yes. versus somebody tell it to me. I can feel the difference. Yes. Yes, it's kind of that observer mindful position, isn't it? Rather than completely mm -hmm. active and going into the trigger, the trigger place. Yeah, right, right. We have the ability, I think, to step back and to kind of, yeah, be, become the witness rather than the dissociated witness, which is still embodied. You know, it's not that spiritual bypassing, as I call it, where we disconnect and, and stand back, but standing back with love, maybe. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, listen, there's my younger self. Oh, I'm sorry. You're still there a bit, sweetheart. I'm sorry. Don't worry. I'll get to you. Oh. I'm coming to you. You know, that kind of way of being kind to ourselves. A bit like I am with Alfie sometimes. Oh, even when he's being a pain. He's adorable. He is. He's a little bit traumatized. So when you were talking about Chloe and everybody coming up and everybody petting her and her being, you know, nice to people, Alfie, he won't let people stroke him. So, yeah, I managed to get him off the back of a lorry from Europe, having been, uh, he's got trauma. Oh, well, he's got the best mom ever then. Yeah, although I don't know whether I'm so good with dogs with complex PTSD. And PTSD <laughs> I, am. I, I can't quite work out the bilateral stimulation or the EMDR machine yet. But somebody did say to me, you could try tapping. Oh, right. Works for dogs, but I'm not quite sure how to tap, you know, or what <laughs> acupressure points you meant to get. You know, there you go. Sherry, it's been delightful. Thank you so much for your time. And I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased to connect to you finally. And I know that what you've got to say is going to help a lot of my audience, at least out there at Trauma Thrivers. And you know, I'll put the link up to your book and your website and I want people to connect to you and any opportunities to translate the book or get you over speaking or just supporting you in your message. I'm all up for that. So I just want to say thank you. Oh, and thank you so much for having me. I couldn't wait to connect with you and go on air together and talk about all this we certainly have a lot in common it sounds like yeah we do and you know anybody that wants to maybe ask you more questions or any feedback maybe at some point we'll do a live one or something and see what questions are fired at us maybe that's for later on down the line that sounds wonderful we'll catch up soon sounds good you take care bye bye take good care Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. I hope it helped you in some way and I really hope to see you back here soon. If you have anything to share on today's experience or podcast, please nip over to the YouTube channel or the Facebook group Trauma Thrivers and let us know there.